Welcome to Sighs and Whispers, an interview podcast series about cultural history. I'm Laura McCloss-Helms, a fashion and cultural historian. Much of the reason I started this podcast was to learn from cultural creatives about the choices they've made and where it's led them, the ups, downs, and zigzags of life. Really as a way of showing that life barely follows the path that you expect, and that it can bring you somewhere far more interesting. My conversation today is with Carol Bell Ford. She's an educator, historian, and writer. As you'll hear in this interview, I first came across her book, The Girls, a few years ago while researching for a still upcoming project. The Girls is an oral history of the Jewish women who came of age in the then Jewish neighborhood of Brownsville in the 1940s and 50s. Carol explores the choices these women made and how these choices were informed by post-war American society, as well as Jewish immigrant life, a subject she understands intimately as one of the girls from Brownsville herself. I became even more interested in Ford once I realized that The Girls was published the same year she retired from a long career as a teacher, professor, and educator. She started a whole second career after retirement and has since published four books that includes three histories and one travel book. Carol's choices led her away from the narrow options available to her in Brownsville at the time, eventually leading her to get her master's and her doctorate, live in Europe, start writing, and launch a whole new career. Women's studies and history are much of the focus of her graduate work and the classes she taught, and understandably are the focal point of her writing. In addition to the girls, she has written about a grassroots campaign run by women to change a family court system, and about how teenage female Holocaust survivors built new lives in America. Now 87, Carol has lived a long and full life. We talk extensively about the Brownsville of her childhood, the opening up of women's lives and options in the last 70 years, her careers and relationships, the appeal of oral history, and more. I hope you find her as intriguing and inspiring as I did. Enjoy. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Well, can I ask you a question before you start? Did you recently become familiar with the girls because you know it was written to over 20 years ago. Yeah. I was doing some research on a project that so I read it about two years ago. Uh-huh. And I well I was, you know, looking into if anyone had written histories of Brownsville, you know, and I was sort of doing just sort of searches on Amazon and libraries and it was in and I took it out from the New York Public Library. That's how why I, were you interested in Brownsville? I am working on a movie project and then I ended up reading A Walker in the City and then I ended up just getting sort of interested in Brownsville, you know, as a place and especially as a place that was something and no longer exists in that form anymore at all. It's completely changed, yeah. And which, you know, a lot of places obviously change, but not to that same degree, I don't think, you know, areas in the city. I mean, I live in Brooklyn. You know, I know a lot about Brooklyn, but and I've lived in areas that have changed while I've lived in them, right? Mm. But not to the same degree, I don't think. No, not at all. Have you read the book by Suleiman Asman? He's written about uh, gentrification and na- changing neighborhoods. And oddly enough, of all the books that I've written, mm-hmm. not that I've written a million books, but of the books that I've written, uh, the book of the girls has tremendous staying power because after 20 something years, I still get notices from SUNY Press that there have been sales 
And it always surprises me because I think, oh my God, how could this be? You know, the book has been out for so long, but apparently it just somehow fits as it did with you, a particular, you know, area of interest. If you read the girls, basically that was my upbringing. The, the girls, the, the uh, women that I interviewed mostly were a little bit older than me, not much older, mm -hmm. but a little bit older than me. There were a few women who were exactly my age, who, who were my cohort. And that's the environment that I grew up in. It was a um, mainly Jewish ghetto. When I was growing up, Brownsville was 80%, at least 80% Jewish. Uh, it began to develop as a Jewish community much earlier on. My family, in fact, I recently found I've been looking for it for years. I recently found information about my grandfather and um, who died in 1915. He was fairly young. He had only been in the US for five years. And I recently got information about him through a death certificate. My family, my, my, my maiden name is Bill, but I was born later and my father had shortened the name but the original name was much longer and was one of those names that is written in about five different ways. So finding information about your family was always trying to negotiate through all of those different spellings. And, and I finally found this information about my grandfather and he lived in Brownsville in 1915. That's where he died. So my family must have been living. I, well, I know my family was living there from that early on, which means that my my mother and father were married in 1914, which means that they lived their entire lives in Brownsville, except for a few periods of time during the war when they moved out of the city. But otherwise, they were in Brownsville until they retired and moved away. Mm -hmm. So. Um, it had a, you know, it's it's had its impact on my family because that's where everyone grew up, and because of growing up in Brownsville, we were immersed in an immigrant culture that was, in a sense, orthodox, but not orthodox in the way you think of orthodox today, mm -hmm. not Borough Park Orthodox or Williamsburg or certainly not, uh, you know, Curious Joel or any of the places that are ultra-Orthodox. They came from an Orthodox tradition in Europe and fairly pretty much maintained it. It was very varied. Some people, some people who were socialists or who were communists didn't follow the traditions at all. They didn't even have bar mitzvahs for their kids. But the other people tended to be more or less Orthodox in their tradition, even if they didn't follow it strictly. So if I were to characterize Brownsville as a community, it was an it was an orthodox, not ultra, but it was an orthodox immigrant community. And when I was growing up, at least at least 80% was Jewish. And then it began to change. And there began to be inroads. You know Brooklyn, so you know that Brownsville um, and Bedford-Stuyvesant mm -hmm. kind of touch on the, on the north. I guess it's the north side. I think of it as north because it's you know, north of Brownsville, whether that's actual north, I don't know. Um, and so in, there began to be kind of fingers reaching down 
like Upper Manhattan, West Side of Manhattan is very similar. And then eventually it just became the Jews as they became a little more prosperous and could get out, wanted to get out of Brownsville. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that was always dominant. Even uh, Kazan wrote about that mm -hmm. as early as what the 1920s, you live in Brownsville, your goal is to get out of Brownsville. And so people moved from Brownsville, mostly people moved to Long Island. Whereas other people like Jews who lived in the Bronx moved further north into Westchester. It was just, and some moved to New Jersey. I lived in Brownsville and I had my first child there. My daughter was born there. And that was in 1957. So I lived in Brownsville till 58 or 15, 58 probably. It was only a block away from where my mother lived mm -hmm. and my father was still living. And it was still predominantly a Jewish neighborhood then. So that was, we began to move away by moving into East Flatbush, which was mm -hmm. a little more affluent. And I don't even know what East Flatbush is like today. I have no idea. But at that time, East Flatbush was a little more affluent. And then people began to move in, you know, different directions. So as an Orthodox Jewish community, uh, it didn't follow the strictly Orthodox because I don't think everything was closed on Saturday. In fact, I don't think, I don't recall the shops really being closed on Saturday, but some of them might have been. All of the shops had, most of the shops, I would, I should say, had Yiddish shopkeepers. They spoke in Yiddish. Uh, it was written. I don't actually read Yiddish, although I grew up with it as my second language, but in my family, my brothers and sisters who I was separated from by a number of years because I was a late, very late birth, they grew up with Yiddish. My brother used to say that when he went to, when he went to kindergarten, they thought he just got off the boat because he spoke Yiddish was his first language. So it was very common in the community. Everybody understood it, even if they didn't speak it. And I actually didn't speak Yiddish. It was funny because I spoke English to my parents and they spoke a broken English or Yiddish. It wasn't until I was much older and I was living here in this community and a group of people decided to have a Yiddish conversation group that I realized that I actually could speak Yiddish. It was so embedded in my brain. I had never done it, but I could speak it and I never knew that. And that was a phenomenon, it was, was really strange. So all of the things you'd expect to find in a Jewish neighborhood, you know, fish shops and butcher shops and bakeries and what we called appetizing stores, which are like um, Russ and Daughters now. The deli. All around the neighborhood, that kind of fish appetizing. Meat was different, deli was meat. Uh, appetizing was fish. So now they're mixed together, but in those days they weren't. And even though it, it's a very odd thing, because in fact, there was a very developed criminal contingency in, in Brownsville. There was murder incorporated. And that was fascinating. But at the same time, juxtaposed mm -hmm. to murder incorporated, there was never a sense of, of feeling unsafe or feeling threatened. There never was a feeling, at least that I never had, and I don't know anybody who grew up in Brownsville who expressed it. There was never a feeling of looking over your shoulder if you were walking home late at night. 
there was crime, but it wasn't personal, one-on-one -on -one personal crime. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that kind of crime. It was that organized crime, you know, murder incorporated crime. And I'm sure there were things that I just was totally unaware of, gambling and prostitution and all of those things. But in my personal experience, I never had experience with any of those things. I never had experience even with people who were drinking with alcohol problems. I know now that they existed, but they were alien to me. And I didn't encounter those things until I was an adult. And in fact, was very naive about it. I didn't know exactly how to handle that kind of thing. In you know, your stories and the stories by the woman in your book, it, can, it seems kind of like very, in a way, an idyllic city child. It does. It, it, it is idealized. A lot of the people who grew up in Brownsville, not only the women, this book was inspired by a book that a friend of mine had written about the Brownsville Boys Club called The Nurturing Neighborhood. And, and we're still, he, he actually was my master's thesis advisor. So we go back a long, long way. And he had written the book, The Nurturing Neighborhood about the men of Brownsville and how uh, relatively to many other ethnic groups, the Jewish men of Brownsville were extremely successful professionals in, as artists, as uh, business people. And he made a lot of statements about growing up in Brownsville. And the name of his book is The Nurturing Neighborhood. So that tells you what his basic thesis was. But it didn't ring true for me or for women who grew up in Brownsville at all. And that was what prompted me to start investigating. I was, you know, you said you have this project that maybe, well, this was a maybe it wasn't even conceived of as a book or a project. I've never written a book before, had a completely other career. This occurred almost around the time I was getting ready to retire from my academic career. I thought, well, I'd write an article maybe in reply in response to my friend, you know, Jerry Soren's book, saying, well, it over it, it overgeneralizes because it's really not about the women, it's about the men. And, and the women's experiences, uh, I know were different. And I didn't, of course, know anything at that point except my own experience. And he was very helpful. I mean, he introduced me to the uh, Brownsville Boys Club so that I ended up with an exact cohort, almost exact cohort to his book, because a lot of the women that I interviewed were actually wives of the men mm -hmm. who grew up and who were in the Brownsville Boys Club. That was how it came about, that, that I began to look at women's experiences. When I was doing my doctorate, I, I became interested in women's education. So I was already interested in women's issues. That was 15 years earlier, maybe, something like that. That's what sparked my interest in pursuing it. And then it got out of hand and, of course, turned into a book, you know, which I hadn't expected. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I mean, one of the things you talk about a lot in the book is about education and that, that, you know, further education wasn't expected for a lot of the women. And obviously you went on to become, get your doctorate and become a professor. How did that happen? You know, how, what did you, how did you decide to go, did you go to college straight from high school? Like how did all of that? Don't, I don't know how it happened. I mean, I know what some of the forces were that, mm -hmm. that pushed me in that direction. But it was a real anomaly, not only among 
my friends, the people I grew up with, I learned later I was exceptional, not unique, not unique, but exceptional. Among my family, it was a complete anomaly because my oldest sister didn't graduate from high school. She graduated from eighth grade. My second oldest, my, my brother graduated from high school. It was a vocational high school called Harron High School in, in New York City, no longer exists. And my youngest sister uh, didn't graduate from high school because she, not my youngest, but the youngest before, before you. me, mm -hmm. um, because she was married by the time she was, she wasn't even 18 when she was married. And so if she were to graduate from high school, she, she would have probably just dropped out. I'm not sure because uh, it's one of those things that I regretted never thinking to ask and get more precise information about. But from what I can figure out now, you know, being a little family detective, I don't believe, I never heard of her having graduated. So I was really an anomaly, but I was also much younger than my siblings. And I was born in a very different generation. And the generation that I was born into was a generation which you already know of women who had very, very minimal choices. What was acceptable was nursing, teaching. Of course, teaching was the best because you and the kids could be in school at the same time. And then you could come home and do your other job, which nobody even at that time acknowledged as another job. But you could come home and take care of your parental responsibilities and you could still work. And the other jobs that were available for women were mostly secretarial work, that kind of work. There were exceptional women who, um, who went on. And uh, one of the women I interviewed for the second book that I wrote actually came out of the girls. She's mentioned in the girls and she, was, she became a lawyer. But now right away, she went back to school in her 40s. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the first women who went to law school after Title IX opened the law schools for women in, in, the, in their 40s. So she was very similar to many of the other women who found some kind of niche for themselves, some kind of career that was similar to something they might have been interested in when they were younger but couldn't pursue. I think by chance, and I really believe that, that this was by chance, my friends were all bright young women who were all in the what we called at that time rapid advance class. When we went from elementary school into junior high school, we were all put in an accelerated program. And my friends, those were my friends. And they were all in a what would today be a college-bound academic program. Although I learned later that almost none of them went to college. Only a handful of them actually went to college. And most of them did the same thing that I did. We were married very young. I was married at 18. I had my first child. I was considerably later because my husband went off to Korea to serve in the army. So there was an enforced period before I could get pregnant. But other friends of mine were pregnant almost immediately. Some of them went back, went to school also like I did, but you know, much later on. So I was in an academic program, and for what reason, I cannot tell you how I ended up going to college. Some of them did too, but dropped out more.
quickly than I did. I did drop out. I went to school for two years, to Queens College for two years, and dropped out. And didn't go back for a few years when I resumed my undergraduate education at Brooklyn College in the evening. So from the time I started college, which, I mean, I know why I dropped out. I was, I was in college at 16 and I was just much, much too young. I was too accelerated in elementary and junior high school and, and in high school too, skipped, uh, a, I guess a semester, one, one, one semester. I just was too young to be in college. I don't know why people go to college when they're out of high school. They should wait until they're about 30. And then my career actually was with adult students, and I appreciated the difference between being a student in my teens and working with adult, you know, with adults. Mm -hmm. So I can't really tell you how it happened, except for those circumstances, those happenstances. Because I think that I was so like, I, probably any teenager, maybe more so, I was so influenced by my peers that I think that if I were with a group of friends who had gone for secretarial degree, which at that time, you could, you could go for three different kinds of high school diplomas. You could get a general diploma or a business diploma like secretarial school or an academic. I would have been in the secretarial program if my friends had been, I think. So I think that some of it was really happenstance. Some of it was some in a natural curiosity about the world, some influences that made me more interested in academic study. So I, I managed to pursue it even after I had children at night. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to tell you why. I, ca I can't say, well, this is what motivated me because I don't know what motivated me. But teaching was very respected in my family. Everyone was very proud of me. So maybe part of it was being motivated by knowing how pleased my family would have been. I don't know. I honestly don't know. You finished your teaching degree while you still had small children. Did you go straight into teaching or go into your master's then? When did you do? No, no. I got my, my undergraduate degree in 1963. Mm -hmm. And I went right into teaching because I had switched majors. When I went to Brooklyn College, mm -hmm. as opposed to Queens College, I switched and became a history major and education minor. It, the system was different, you know, then. But at that time, it was possible to do that. So I didn't have certification, but I was able to substitute teach. So that's what happened. I began to substitute teach. And my kids were in, I had two children by then, and they were in nursery school. So I had the ideal job. I had that ideal job. I could work, and I could also uh, take care of my children. Mm -hmm. And then gradually, I got my certification and got permanent work as a secondary school teacher in Brooklyn in a fairly difficult school in Bushwick. And from there, I was there for a number of years, and then we decided to work overseas because we wanted to have that overseas experience. My husband was a teacher, and so we went to England. We taught in England for um, a year. It wasn't an exchange, but we had gotten jobs there. And then when we came back, I continued to pursue. <clears throat> That's when I got my master's and doctorate, and that's when I began to work for Empire State College. 
before I actually had my degree. Did you teach it at American or international school? In no, England? we actually taught in British schools. Oh. I was born in New York City, but when I was seven, I moved to London and I went to the American school in London from when I was seven to 18. So I, I know a lot about the international. The one in Shepherd's Bush? St. John's Wood, yeah. We almost, got, we almost worked there. Well, it was very interesting because we didn't really know a lot about the English system. And so we thought we could teach things that we could really couldn't teach in England. Like we thought because we both were teaching social studies that we could teach geography, but the English really taught geography. We never knew. We, I mean, they literally taught geography. It was a real subject. Mm -hmm. So we applied in a lot of different ways and we ended up being uh, interviewed for a number of different jobs. And it was a, a, it was a time when it was possible to get a job in England if you, if there was nobody in England or if the school could claim that there was nobody who had those exact qualifications that they were looking for. We got jobs in Newbury and we settled for the year and a half that we were there in, in near Ox, well, actually sort of in between Oxford and, and Newbury. After that, we just went back a million times because we have family and friends there. So you, what brought you to England? How did you manage, how, why were you in school there? Well, my father ended up deciding to start a business with someone who was in England. And so we moved. I was there from when I was seven to 18. And then I came back to, you know, go to college here, but I ended up doing, I only did two years of my PhD there and because my parents were still there until about 10 years ago i mean oh. I, I still had my own bedroom until you know not that long ago oh. yeah so, so you're saying from the age of seven until 18 oh mm -hmm. so you really grew up there yeah wow but in the american school i was never in the british system so uh -huh. yeah. well we were we were in we got jobs in two different um schools because we were in single sex school. So I taught in a girl's school and my husband taught in the boys school across town. And uh, it was, we had a wonderful, wonderful year. In fact, he still, this is strictly a gender thing. I'm sure of it. He's still in touch with the boys that, who are not obviously boys anymore, who he taught. Um, and when we go to England, they have little mini reunions. I've been in touch with two or three of, of the girls, but they changed their names, they moved away. Mm -hmm. It was really not possible to keep, you know, to keep track. So it was, it was really quite a wonderful experience and it changed our lives in the sense that we made very close friends. My husband's brother moved to England because we were there. So he came and he never left. And so we still have a lot of connections with people in England and we go back all the time it's 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 in some ways it's like a second home you know it's very comfortable to us it's probably like it is for you maybe you know maybe more so for you because you grew up there I definitely have missed visiting this last yeah. year so um I so with do you think that having a husband who is a teacher helped him you know like made him more supportive of you having your own career as a teacher and and um, getting your master's and doing all these other things? 
I think that, I don't know that it's because he was a teacher. I don't know that it's because he was a teacher. Although it gave us um, something in common that was very powerful because we could support each other in you know many ways throughout mm-hmm. all throughout our careers. I mean, it's one thing to talk to somebody about what you're doing. There's something else to talk to somebody who's doing something very similar, who really knows what you're talking about. But we, you know, philosophically had very similar ideas about teaching and what should be done and what could be done. We still have the same ideas. They're still not being done. <laughs> um, so I don't know that it was his being a teacher that made that made it much easier for us to communicate. I think it was a combination of our personalities that I was pretty much fixed at that point on you know what I wanted to do, and he was open to it. He wasn't mm-hmm. insisting on my playing a more traditional a more traditional role, um, which is odd because he comes from a very, he came from a very traditional family, but it wasn't in his nature, you know, so he was, he was always, always supportive. And in fact, we took turns when we came back from England, we needed, we both needed masters at that point. We both had undergraduate degrees, but not master's degrees. So he went to get his master's degree and I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And then when he got his master's, he got a job and I got my master's while he was teaching. And then I went on, at that point, I did. I thought I would do administrative work, but I didn't really like it. So I went on to do my doctorate instead of administrative. Cert- I got the administrative certification, but I didn't like it. I went on to do the doctorate. At that point, I think he was, he was working. I did a little part-time work just to help support us while I was, you know, doing that. But mostly I was primarily a full, almost a full-time student from the time I did my master's until I finished my doctorate. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd been able to do it if I weren't. It takes a lot of time and a lot yeah. of effort and, you know, the space to think these things through doing a doctorate. What was your doctorate in? It was in curriculum and teacher education. Although I did do that throughout my career, I became interested in women's issues when I was doing my dissertation. Mm-hmm. And I came upon women's issues because I was, I was researching something related to education, but I came upon issues related to women's education or what we know now would be the lack of women's education. And I got very interested in that. And I began to look into that as an issue. And women's education expanded into women's issues. And that became more my most pre- predominant, my most dominant area of ac- academic work. So that when I, working in Empire State College, was such a perfect fit for me if I had created a job for myself, if I had sat down and said, what kind of job would you like to have in education? And at one point I I really thought I might leave education, but I had already so many years invested that I didn't want to make the change. But if I sat down and said to myself, what kind of job would you like to have? I would have created the job I had 
I was one of those people who was so fortunate. Empire State College, when it first began, and I became, I, I started on the faculty part-time, only a few years after it was initiated, was an alternative program. I was always interested in alternative education. It was a program for adult students. It was extremely flexible. It, it, people could get degrees in things that you think are impossible, you know, outrage, like the archaeology, the anthropology of dance, mm -hmm. subjects that you, you could never even think about getting a degree in, combinations of things. The way that we work, because we were working as mentors on a one-on-one -on -one basis with students primarily, we did, we did some small, we did seminars, but most of our work was tutorial. So it was one-on-one. -on -one. We helped the students design a unique program, whatever the program was, or it could have been an extremely traditional program if that's what a student wanted. I mean, it was, you didn't have to do a unique program. We helped the students design their program so that my curriculum, you know, knowledge about curriculum fit right in with that. We were one of the people who taught the students because they had a lot of different teachers. And I taught history because I had my undergraduate degree was in history. And I continued with history as my master's. So I had a master's degree in American history. And that focused on women and minority education and immigrant education. And then I had my doctorate in curriculum and teacher education. So curriculum was very comfortable area for me. And I did the teaching in those areas. And I also was the administrator of, of the way that Empire uh, is uh, organized. It's organized all over New York State and it's part of the SUNY system. It's organized all over New York State in small um, units. There, It's like satellites. And so each of those satellites needs some administrative coordinating work. And I had the administrative experience from before I went for the doctorate because I was studying for, um, I was studying administration. So I, complete, I had completed that certification. And at one point, I never pursued this, but at one point before we went to England, I was thinking of doing counseling, guidance counseling. And part of what we did was academic counseling, not part of the curriculum development was academic counseling. So it took all of these different pieces of my um, academic work, of my background and experience, and put them all together in one job. And it was just the most wonderful job for me. And I had other very interesting experiences. I taught in several prisons. I coordinated different prison programs. And the year before I retired, we spent a year and then another six months in Athens because I coordinated the Empire College overseas program in Greece. So I had a wonderful career. And then when I retired, the year that I retired is when the girls came out. And I never thought of myself as a writer. I, I wrote some articles, you know, things like that, but I never thought of myself as a writer. And all of a sudden I had this book and I had 
gotten a lot of um, good commentary and, and reviews. And I got involved very soon after I had written the girls in the second book because it grew out of the girls. It was about this woman who had organized a grassroots movement and basically she was a lawyer at this point, basically overturned an entrenched family court system that was incredibly corrupt in Houston, Texas, and installed all these, you know, new programs and new uh, and new judges and things like that. So I got, you know, sort of drawn almost immediately into another book, a very similar in this in in methodology, because it was based on partly on oral history, but not just oral history. And then I got drawn into another book by somebody who read The Girls and contacted me and said, I have an idea for a book I thought you might be interested in writing. And so it just kind of happened. It just developed without, without a plan. So for the last 20 something years that I've been retired, I've had another career, a writing career. I never expected that, it's been wonderful. Why oral history? Is there a reason why you know, you're attracted to them? Partly it's because I believed when I probably when I started, they were, the, the subject when I started with the girls mm -hmm. uh, was not a subject that could have been written except for oral history. Because as you know, you know enough about women's studies to know that women were overlooked. And unless they were in very conventional roles, they were essentially overlooked. People didn't think women's history was something important because it was social history. It wasn't political history and it, you know. And so there was no other way basically of doing a book like The Girls except getting firsthand information from the source. And the sources were women and the only way you could get that information was by interviewing them. And so for The Girls, it had to be that way. For Court Watch, for the second book, it didn't have to be, but a lot of that same imperative applied because it was very important. There was a, there was more of an a, actual written record, but not that much because it was, again, a grassroots women's movement. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that you could go back to and say, how did this start? How did they get started? What was promoting them? You know, what was prompting them? What was what would what were they what philosophy were they operating by? So it kind of made sense. The oral history made sense for the subject. And the same thing was true of the next book, which is a book about Holocaust survivors, uh, young women who came to America when they were teenagers. There's no way that their story could have been told. There were, of course, I mean there's an enormous Holocaust literature, and I'm not a Holocaust scholar. I never was a Holocaust scholar, and I never claimed to be. There's an enormous literature, and I had to consult that literature. But for the personal story, there was no way to consult the literature. How many people were writing about the problems of uh, women who didn't have menopause for four or five years when they were in concentration camps, and what kind of an effect that had on their development or physio physiological and psychological. So, I mean, there were so many issues, mm -hmm. uh, always with women, issues that were 
never taken seriously, you know, that were overlooked. So oral history in combination with rigorous academic research so that you know that you're not just repeating something that somebody said anecdotally, but that you can embed that in a kind of historical research framework adds so much that these kinds of books can't be written without without the oral history but it's it hasn't been my most the most recent way that i've been writing i did some work on letters from that a young woman kept in the 18th century a proto-feminist and my most recent book it's complete was a complete departure because it, we've done a tremendous a lot of traveling over the years uh, in the u.s and in europe and this book was about traveling in the u.s so that was personal, very personal. Yeah, I was reading about it. Uh, it's all about your road trips, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, can't, yeah. I can't wait to read it. I love road trips and can't wait till my husband and I really? have enough to take more. But um, uh, send me your address. I, I would like to send you a book. Oh, yeah. I'd love yeah. To it. It, it, this book was a labor of love. I mean, I had been keeping journals. Um, from the time we started traveling with our camp in a camper. And the reason that I bought the camper, that we, we bought a camper, was because I was finishing the girls. Mm. And I was on sabbatical. And my sabbatical job was to get the book finished. And so we were going to go to Europe, and we were thinking that we'd stop in various places. But I knew that it would be so difficult for me to finish my research or to communicate with the publishers to do all the things I needed to do at that point in a haphazard way. But I believe that if we traveled around in the country, in, in this country, and we had already been tent campers for about 20 years at mm -hmm. that point, I believe that if we went to campgrounds, there would be sufficient internet that I would be able to do it. And this was in the year uh, 1996. And for the most part, that was true. It was still fairly early on. Yeah, uh, they like dial up in it, that's real. Yeah, we were dialing up with modems. You probably don't even remember them. I do remember. <laughs> we were dialing up with modems to begin with, and then and then we had to hook in. And then after that, we had to hook into Wi-Fi, but that came much later. But when I, so I actually spent, um, I almost well, we were we were traveling for five months. I spent five months finishing my book in the camper as we were traveling around the country. I'm really impressed with that. I feel like that would take so much focus to sit in the camper and write. And well, it, it was it, we we developed a kind of routine mm -hmm. where I would work in the morning and then in the afternoon we would either travel. Or if we were in some place we stayed in for a while, we would um, explore the area. So it became a kind of a routine, and I didn't stick to it, you know, rigidly. But uh, it was workable. It worked out. And then, of course, there still was finishing up to do when I got back. It was finished in 99, 98, but then it took a year or so all the diddling around and everything. I didn't know anything about publishing. Nothing, nothing. In fact, my worst contract was with SUNY Press because I didn't know anything about publishing. I never made a penny on that book. 
even though it sold the most copies of anything I've ever written. <laughs> but I didn't care. Writing has never been for the purpose of making money because I never thought I'd make any money doing the kind of writing that I did. I'd have to write a blockbuster you know, mystery or something. <laughs> yeah. It's not, not something I, I know how to do. This last book was something totally different. And part of it was I actually had, I guess, a form of burnout from having written the book about the Holocaust survivors. That book was so difficult. It was so difficult to write in, at a number of different points because I got to know the women. And so the experiences were very personal and they were very painful to hear about. They weren't, a, there was nothing abstract about this. You know, you couldn't kind of look at it in a just sort of purely intellectual way. It was very, very personal. And I remember we had gone to, we had gone to Europe. We were in Poland because I was giving a presentation on an aspect of the book. The book wasn't finished, but on an aspect of the book at a conference in Krakow. And we had gone to Poland. And we were in the city of Wuj. It's spelled L-O-D-Z, but it's pronounced Wuj, which is where one of the women I was had been interviewing came from. And we were at the exact place where they were all taken to go to the concentration camp. And it's a memorial now in uh, in the city. And they have uh, one of the cars that, you know, cattle cars that people were herded onto. And... I said to my husband, and I wrote, this is, I think, in the introduction, I said to my husband, I don't think I can do this. I, it's just too difficult. And he said, they lived through it. You have to be their voice. You're only writing about it. And, of course, I thought about it, and I felt, yeah, I really have to do this. But when I finished doing it, I think that I was so, I was so, burned out. I was exhausted. I didn't want to do another oral history at that point. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, let me look at my journals. And that became a complete departure because I went back into all these wonderful trips we had taken and I was able to research and add to it and, you know, take this, take the trips that we, that we took and put them in a kind of a social and historical context in regard to the places that we visited. So it became a, a kind of an academic project as well as an editorial project. But it was enjoyable to do because I was going back to these wonderful trips and then updating information. And I think I really needed to have that break. Whether I have another book, I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty old, you know, I'm 86. So I don't know. I don't know if I want to invest my time in another book unless it's something that comes up that'll be fun. I am actually reviving, revising, uh, and editing journals from European trips. So if I live long enough, I don't know. Maybe it'll be another book. But right now, it's just really for my family, for my kids, mm -hmm. you know, for whoever might be interested in reading it. You mentioned something that you were had been looking at someone's letters from the 1800s? Yeah, uh, that was a few years ago. There is a 
organization in this town. We live in New Paltz. Mm -hmm. And New Paltz is, I don't know if you know this, New Paltz has the oldest street in America. I did not know that. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. Um, we have um, we have a street called Huguenot Street. New Paltz was settled by French Huguenots, mm -hmm. and they had come um, from France. Some of them came from via Germany, via Holland. They picked up a lot of Dutch people, you know, along the way, and they settled in this area. And this area of the Hudson Valley had a number of different settlements of Huguenots and other Protestants who were leaving. Europe at the time that that Protestant people were being persecuted. They settled in New Paltz. And so this is a very historical, it's a very historical area. And New Paltz has the Huguenot Society, which is a historical society. So I was doing some work with the historical society. And they asked me if I would go through these letters that had been written by a young woman mid-19th century, around the time of the Civil War. She was a, a teenager. She was an adolescent. And she was in a uh, private school in Poughkeepsie, which is across the river from where we are. She lived in Highland. Poughkeepsie is just across from Highland. Highland's a few miles away from here. So I began to transcribe her letters so that they could be digitalized. And that's how I became involved with that particular project. So I began to write commentary on some of the letters that I had been reading. And I found that this, this young woman was a kind of young proto-feminist in, in the 1800s, which was not impossible. You know, it was after Seneca Falls. So there was already, you know, there were already issues around uh, women's rights, the first wave, the first movement, mm -hmm. women's movement. And then eventually this one of my stories was published in a book of um, women writers of the Hudson Valley. And she was she was an interesting little lady. She sounds like it. Yeah. I love when you discover those things, especially, you know, to you it must have, like reading those letters and realizing it tied in with your work in women's studies. Yeah. Yeah, it, which is maybe the reason that they asked me to do it. I'm not, I can't, I don't even remember. It was a number of years ago why I even got involved in the project to begin with. But it was just interesting to me to do some historical research. And this seemed to be perfect, you know, just reading letters, handwritten, of course. Mm -hmm. How else would they have been written, you know, in 1859 or whatever, whatever the year was? So it, it fit, you know, it fit very nicely. And it was very, it was interesting. It was one of the found families. There are a number of families in the area that uh, trace their roots back to the original settlers, the Huguenots. Mm -hmm. So we have a street, Huguenot Street, mm -hmm. that has maybe a half a dozen or more houses that uh, still exist and, and were inhabited for like the longest period of time and still just now a lot of them are are more like museums you know they people go through them but some of them people still lived in some of those old houses i'll have to check that out next time i'm in new Paltz. i never never realized that it's a very this is a wonderful area 
to visit. It's a really nice area to be in because there are so many interesting things. We have a lot of good museums around here. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's Mohonk, not just the mountain house, but the whole Mohonk Preserve. Mm -hmm. Minnewaska, the Roosevelt Estate is across the river, the Culinary Institute, which is another program that I had in Empire State College for 10 years. Uh, before I retired, and then for a couple of years after I retired, I coordinated a program at the Culinary Institute for faculty in the hospitality program and chefs who didn't have their bachelor's degrees. So the the school was beginning to develop a baccalaureate program, mm -hmm. and now is I think they may have developed a master's program. So they needed a certain number of of faculty a percentage of faculty had to have their bachelor's degrees or they couldn't offer a bachelor's degree. And so they asked Empire if we would be able to work with these adult students because the other thing about Empire is that it was possible for students to get credit for life experience learning. Wow, interesting. And so that was a major factor. So here we had these super accomplished chefs who had learned everything they could possibly have learned about the field of expertise and were teaching. So they had knowledge of the field. They had knowledge of some classroom teaching techniques, various kinds of things that they could get college credit for. But what they didn't have were the basics, English and history and math. And so we needed to put programs together for each of them so that they could get their college degrees. And it was very successful and so much fun and it was the most fun program I ever could imagine working with because my other interest besides travel, I'm very interested in food and cooking and I've always been, you know, an avid cook. So I was able to get a little culinary education of my own by sitting in and observing classrooms. So I'm observing the teaching, but I'm learning whatever it is that they're teaching their students. It was it was great, really, really great. Went on for about 12, 13 years. And then as they hired more and more people over that period of time, they knew they needed people with bachelor's degrees. So they were hiring people with degrees. So the program phased out, but we knew that it would. We, you know, we expected it. To. But that was one of the best experiences. That I'll tell you just one little thing. The first graduate, he was the wine teacher he still is the wine teacher, but he's getting ready to retire now. Or he might have just retired. He was the first graduate, Empire graduate, with a, with a bachelor's degree. And I said, you know what would be fun? Let's have a potluck party, a graduate, you know, a graduation party at my house. So we had a potluck party and all these chefs came and they brought different dishes. One of them was an expert in coffee. If you could understand that there is somebody who's an expert in just coffee. And he brought Greek coffee and espresso and like five different coffee pots. He brought all these and he went around saying, what kind of coffee would you like? What kind of coffee? It was, I have to tell you, I mean, you can imagine everybody who heard about it wanted an invitation. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing party. <laughs> It was really wonderful. So that was that was a you know great part. I had a I had a really terrific career, really terrific. So with Empire State, were you always attached to SUNY New Paltz? 
SUNY New Paltz uh, and Empire State are two colleges in the same state university system. Yeah. They're totally unconnected. Okay. Although when we start, when I started working there, we were on the campus, but we were not connected to SUNY. Although students from Empire can take SUNY classes, that's, that can be part of the program. What it is was it was an alternative school in the SUNY mm -hmm. system. SUNY said, we're going to have an alternative program. And that alternative program is going to have these various components. It's going to allow people to develop their own program. Mm -hmm. It's going to allow for diverse and unique kinds of programs, as well as very traditional kinds of program. It's going to give college credit for college learning. That's not credit for having done something, but students had to go through a process of it demonstrating what they've learned yeah. and if you learned what you might have learned in say a introduction to literature course mm -hmm. you could get credit for, for having taken introduction to literature and then filled in the rest of the program with courses that were required or necessary or courses that were like electives and it was one-on-one -on -one, so the faculty of empire worked with individual students but also, as I said before, could teach a seminar on any given subject. It sounds like a really wonderful program. It I is, really know anything about it. If you can work mostly independently, it is a wonderful program. Mm -hmm. But for people, some people doesn't, you know, it didn't work. But for me, as faculty, was it was perfect. It was a perfect fit. What do you feel like you gained by teaching? What did teaching bring to your life? Well, I was good at it. So I got this satisfaction of a lot of positive reinforcement mm -hmm. um, that was always good for my ego. I made good friends uh, as a result of my teaching. Some who were my students. I have, a, I have a, a young woman who, well, she's not a young woman anymore. She's getting on. But she was a young woman who's still a friend of mine, you know, who I met so many years ago. It's, it gave me the opportunity to have a lot of different kinds of experiences, to meet people I never would have met. So it was very expanding in a lot of different ways. It was satisfying intellectually because I could do, I could work in so many different areas. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because the way that Empire was originally organized, there were no distributive requirements. So there was tremendous flexibility. There were definitely requirements within the program, but they weren't traditional distributive requirements. We could teach anything if we were willing to do the research and learn enough about it to teach it so that we could take an area we were interested in and develop our own knowledge and expertise, relatively, relative expertise. Not, we would never become an expert, but we could develop enough expertise to then say, okay, I'm going to teach a course in this or that or whatever the other thing is. It was very enriching for me in many ways. And as I said, it was a tremendously, it was an enormously perfect fit. It was such a perfect fit in all of my different, you know, areas of interest. So it gave me a lot. It was, I, I just feel very fortunate that I was in a program that was so satisfying. I never felt burned out. In fact, I was planning to retire for five years before I did because I couldn't tear myself away. 
And we had a wonderful faculty, a lot of people with very similar kinds of ideas. We were, didn't become close, intimate friends, but we were very coherent, cohesive faculty. We didn't have the kind of petty bickering in, that we heard about in so many, you know, other faculties. It was a very enriching, it was a very enriching experience. And I think it changed me tremendously. I think I would have been a very different person if I'd stayed, say, in secondary teaching, mm -hmm. which would have been, to me, much more, much more limiting experience. It sounds like your work at Empire State laid the groundwork for you then to move into researching and writing books. Well, my academic work gave me the research skills mm -hmm. and they, they were developed further in Empire because we were able to not, we weren't being forced to stay in one narrow area, but we were able to expand. So they, that did develop it. I think that uh, it gave me the, di the discipline in some way to do the writing. And I was doing a lot of writing. I mean, there was a lot of writing involved, but it was mostly, you know, academic kind of stuff. It's hard to pinpoint the influence, the exact influence of one thing mm -hmm. on another, because it's all cumulative. One, one aspect of, a, of the job, say, would add something to my understanding that I didn't have before. For example, I mean, this is a dramatic example, an unusual example, but one of my students was transvestite way, way, way back, way back. And that was when I learned, because it was what she taught me, what it meant to be a transvestite, that a transvestite wasn't necessarily homosexual. A transvestite didn't necessarily fit into a particular category of male, female, whatever. It was what she she believed she was woman. She felt that she was a woman from the time she was conscious of her sexuality. I mean, I learned so much that I, but that is, like I said, a dramatic example. There was so much variety in the job and so many different people that I think that it had to have expanded my understanding in the same way that I think travel expanded my understanding because our travels have always been a little bit different in the sense that we didn't take tours, we traveled on our own. And many times we've made many friends all over, not all over the world, but many parts of the world and certainly all over Europe. So that we, our experiences were a little more than superficial mm -hmm. when we traveled. And all of those things added. I mean, I remember the first time we went to Europe, my husband got so angry because we were in Paris in Luxembourg Garden, and somebody came and asked for 20 centimes or something for using the chair. And he said, what is this all that is? I mean, it wasn't the 20 centimes, but it was like, he said, am I being ripped off? You know, what's going on? Because he didn't understand the cultural difference that he, he had no concept. I mean, we wouldn't in America have any concept of somebody coming over and asking for money for sitting on a park bench. And it was a similar kind of thing. So those little things all were so expanding. It was so mind, you know, expanding. And then we, we were invited by a friend of his to spend summer in a small town in Italy 
where his friend had inherited the family house because his grandmother, his friend's grandmother had died. And that became the place we went to for 40 years. We went back to this little town in the Dolomites and we knew all the people and it was like, you know, when we went back, the same people, on, I mean, over the years, of course, they're not the same people anymore. But we now are friends with the grandchildren of people we were friends with originally. But it was a very different experience mm -hmm. being embedded in that culture than it would have been if we were tourists. All of those things changed, you know, my brain over all the years, little bits and pieces at a time. You've been married, what, 60, around 60 years? I was married twice. My first marriage was only about 10 years. But mm -hmm. I've been married to my husband, my present husband, for 52 years. My children are with my first marriage. That's when I was married. When I, that's when I was 18. And we were very good friends. We remained very good friends until he died. We came from the same community. He grew up in Brownsville. We came from two families that had intermarried in Russia. My aunts were married to his uncles in Russia. And I just recently found out that my grandfather was married to who I think was his great aunt, but was married to that somebody in that family. And then we, so we were at least the fourth marriage between the two families. It almost sounds incestuous. It's like the Hatfields and the McCoys. So we were childhood sweethearts. We grew up together and we were very close but very incompatible. Mm -hmm. He turned out to be a very serious conservative. And I was almost a communist, but never came. I, ne I never went quite that far left. And I've become more conservative as I've gotten a little bit older. But we were so different in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. But we remained good friends. And then I remarried when I was in my early 30s. So we've been married now for since 1969. Amazing. Uh, my parents also got married in 1969. Did they? Yeah. <laughs> my husband was just saying yesterday something about, we were teasing him, and he said something about he never makes mistakes. No. And he said, I did make a mistake in 1958, I think. And I said, no, you, I know you made one in 1969. <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. <laughs> that was the big one. <laughs> He was from a totally different background. I mean, it couldn't have been, could have been a little more different. It could have been more different, but not quite as, you know, very different background. He came from a German-Irish Catholic background. He came from Brooklyn, Bushwick, mm -hmm. which is not any, that's another neighborhood you could look at. If mm -hmm. you're looking at neighborhoods that have had radical changes, because Bushwick was originally... German, and then it became Irish-Italian, and then it became essentially not ever really um, Black, but more Hispanic, you know, Latino neighborhood. And when I met him, we were teaching in Brooklyn in the neighborhood that he grew up in, and it was almost totally Latino at that point. So he had gone through a very similar thing to what I went through in relation to Brownsville. So that I guess we had that in common, but uh, our backgrounds were very, very different. I had been married before. I had a couple of kids. So it was a challenge. Our early married life was a serious challenge. 
52 years is incredibly impressive, though. So. Seems like a long time, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but I have friends who have been married longer than that. So um, I'm humbled by that knowledge. You know, I don't know if this is too personal, but like, what do you, how do you think, you know, you got through those early, those difficult first years and then have that been able to have such a long, happy marriage? It's not too personal. It's just one of those questions that is very difficult to answer because we did have to make a lot of compromises. We weren't always aware that we were making those compromises. He came into the marriage with very different expectations, what his role would be, for example, in relation to the kids. And when we lived together for a number of, we lived together for almost a year before we got married in the 1960s, that was still a little bit radical to do, but we did live together. But for the whole time that we were living together, he didn't think of himself as the father. So he was able to sort of step back and not get involved. But when we got married, it was like, oh, what happened? All of a sudden, he was setting down rules about what time everybody had to be home for dinner, <laughs> things like that. There were so many little things, you know, that we didn't even understand that came from very different backgrounds, but not just different backgrounds in sense of religious, because neither of us were religious. He had given up. He became a lapsed Catholic very early on in his life. But there are things that are embedded that are in your personality that you absorbed from the air that you breathed around you that were very different. And, and so he had been brought up in a very conservative, Catholic, very traditional family. I was brought up in a Jewish, ortho, not really Orthodox, but following the Orthodox tradition, but in an, in an environment in which um, I was able to, I was much more liberal. That was much more liberal. That that the religious background was orthodox, but socially, the attitudes were much more liberal. So there was this liberal and conservative clash, and it came to a head. One of the earliest issues that came up was Vietnam, mm. because he was raised to be a patriot. You know, you do what whatever the government says you're supposed to do. And I was raised in a much more uh, challenging, you know, as a, to cha challenge those positions. And I remember at one point saying, if we have, to, if you, he was, he had a number, they were giving people mm -hmm. men. Yeah, the draft, yeah. They were giving people draft numbers and he had a number. And we said, if his number came up, I think we really need to think about moving to Canada that I just, just couldn't imagine him going into the service. And he didn't know if he could do that. So there were very serious differences that we didn't realize or deal with until after the fact. They just were, you know, compromises. I think that what we both learned more than anything was that we didn't know anybody who has a perfect marriage. Uh, maybe you do, and so maybe I shouldn't say that, but we don't know, we have never known anybody who had a perfect marriage. Marriage, the, when you get married, you commit yourself to making changes and compromises because there's always going to be compromises. 
And I, I don't think there's any secret to it. That I mean, we couldn't even tell you what held what held us together was apparently underneath whatever the differences were with the was with the desire to be together. That we had enough that we shared that was so important to us um, that we didn't want to relinquish that. And we either and even to this day. We'll have an argument about so we'll start to have an argument about something and we'll say look are we going to have this argument we've had it 150,000 times and we never resolve it and so some things we just agree to disagree and you don't even go there anymore because there's no point it's never going to you know change so I can't you know I can't really tell you and I don't think he would tell you anything differently that there was something there was some bond that was stronger than the differences mm -hmm. but it took it took a lot of compromises and it still does you know it's still you still compromise on the same things that you disagree about that makes a lot of sense i mean when you look back at your whole life everything your career family life everything what do you feel most proud of i don't know how to separate it out I guess it goes back in a way to one of the first questions you asked me, one of the first things we talked about. I guess if I had to say what am I most proud of, it would be having come from a poor, very really poor immigrant family and having accomplished what I have, you know, having accomplished academically, getting a doctorate, having a really good academic career, and then having this second, totally, completely unexpected career as a bonus. I don't think I could say I'm proud of living a long life, but I'm very grateful that I've lived a long life. But I think, yeah, I think that's probably the thing I'd say I'm most proud of, if I could pinpoint a thing, but I think, I think I'm pleased with my, I'm still pleased with myself in the sense of, I believe I know who I am and I am com comfortable with my value system. I despair over what's going on in our country. It just, it's terribly so sad to me. Mm -hmm. My husband and my kids and everybody who knows me will probably tell you I'm too opinionated and I think I know what will fix the world, but I don't think I really know what will fix the world, except in a very general way, <laughs> I think I probably do. But it's very simplistic. You know, it's just that things are out of whack and they need to be more fair mm -hmm. in every area, you name it. But I, I, guess, I guess that's what I would say, that, that, I, that I've been able to develop, to, to grow up and become a whole person and it and have the different pieces of my life integrated in a way that I'm comfortable being who I am. I wasn't always, I mean, I certainly wasn't always, and I had a lot of help along the way. At this point, I think I can say that. That's sort of the, it's definitely the goal is to feel, you know, like a... Whole yeah. and yourself, yeah. yourself and whole. How did it 
feel revisiting your childhood and your childhood world and the world of your family when you wrote The Girls? How did it feel? You know? Well, I think that I enjoyed the fact, I, well, I appreciated the fact that I was looking at that world in a way that I had never had before. So that I understood it in a completely different way. So that I was able to look back at decisions I hadn't made. Mm -hmm. For example, why didn't I become a lawyer, you know, instead of a teacher? I was able to look back at decisions that I had and hadn't made in a different way. And I think I was able to look at my family and my parents and put them in a perspective that I hadn't appreciated earlier on. But as I've gotten older, I have appreciated so much more of what they went through and what they did. My mother was 17 years old. Her parents, her family had already come to America. She when she was 15 years old, she left home, her town that she lived in, and went to Kiev, to the big city. She worked and she saved money and she made her way across Europe from Russia. She was 17 and she made her way somehow, not by herself, I know she must have gone with with a group of people, went, made her way across Russia to Bremen, to Germany, mm -hmm. to, to the edge of Germany and got a boat, came to America, landed in Baltimore, didn't know a word of English and made her way somehow to her parents who had settled in Pittsburgh. She was 17. Yeah, I mean, I can't I didn't wrap my head around how you would manage that at that age at that time. Yeah. And, you know, so when I was arguing with my mother about whatever it was, whatever I was arguing with her about, mm -hmm. did I have any concept of what this woman had accomplished? Just just that, nothing more. Just that. What she had accomplished just in getting to America and if there were time, I would tell you a little more about her background because it's so fascinating because she went on to, you know, pursue a lost part of her family, all kinds of things. She became, you know, she studied English. She learned how to read and write. Of course, her own version of writing, which was very phonetic. So when you read something that my mother wrote, it's hilarious because she wrote it in her accent. I couldn't possibly have appreciated anything like that. And the same thing was true with my father. My father was supposed to go into the Russian army because when you turn 18, when you turned 18 at that time, you immediately, you know, automatically conscripted into the Russian army. 19, I'm talking about 1910. Yeah, I was about to say, was it Tsarist Russia? Before the, yeah, before the revolution. And so, um, he was smuggled out of the country in a hay wagon or in a wagon of some kind. And my my cousin was witness to that and told me this whole story because I was really too stupid to sit down and really interview and ask my parents the questions I should have asked them when I could have. But fortunately, I had 
a big family and other people could fill in bits and pieces. He was actually put on a in a wagon and covered with straw. And he was smuggled out of the country and came to America. And she said when she arrived, because she was getting on a train with her mother, my father's sister, and it took them a long time to get to America. By the time they got to America, my father came to greet them at the, at the boat. He was already an American, she said. He had his facts on. I mean, <laughs> what was that? You know, what was his trip like? God, I, I mean, if I would give anything to be able to interview him now and say, Pop, tell me, mm-hmm. what was that like? But don't make that mistake. Talk to your parents, grandparents. Get every bit of information you can, because one day you're going to really want to know those things. It's come up before I've talked to people. They don't, you know, you don't realize how much you're losing if you don't talk to them. You don't realize it because you're not old enough to realize it yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that sounds condescending, but I don't mean it to. But there's a certain point you get to it in your own life where you realize that there are a lot of things that you just missed because you didn't understand when you were younger, that they're so fragile and that they disappear in a moment and you don't know when they're going to be gone. And that you can't say, oh, I'll do that next year. I had um, a very good, very good friend who was much older than me. She was like, not, I can't say she was like a second parent, but she was parental in many ways. She was a remarkable woman. And I had decided that I was going to write it was after the girls, and I, I had already begun my writing career, and I thought that I would write her biography, and I'm so, I so regret still that I didn't think to do it sooner, because it was too late. By the time I realized that she was, you know, she was already not, she wouldn't have been able to participate, and then she died soon after that, and you don't realize you know, because you're young, you don't think about those things. You shouldn't be thinking about them. If you can, just get all the information that you can, because one day you'll be so glad that you have it. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. You're welcome. Well, I appreciate it very much. Thanks again for listening to this conversation with Carol Bell Ford. Please head to our website to read a short article and to learn more about our books. See you next week.